Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 57. It's about World War I then. What was happening a hundred years ago this week? And it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is February 2nd, 2018. And our guests for this week include Dr. Edward Lengel in our February 1918 overview. R.G. Head with a full year look at the war in the sky. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, looking at the chaotic situation in Russia. Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, speaking about the Harlem Rattlers and the African-American soldiers' experience in World War I. Dr. Marjorie DeRozier, telling us about Nurse Josephine Heffernan. Ed Rakowitz and Scott Govitz from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Beaverton, Michigan. Catherine Akey, with some selections from the centennial of World War I in social media. All that and more this week on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Before we jump into our Wayback Machine and look at 100 years ago this week, we're going to try something new. You know, we have editorial meetings twice a week where we define the content for each week's show. For the history section, which is one of the most popular parts of the podcast, we get into these great conversations about what was really going on 100 years ago this week. We look at the politics, the official bulletin, the New York Times, history book references, and of course, we have our own little band of experts and researchers. It occurs to us that having a short version of one of these conversations in front of you at the top of each month might be a great way to provide context and overview. In other words, from an overview perspective, and of course, with 2020 hindsight, what is the next month all about in the war that changed the world? And what are the themes we're going to hear about this coming month? So the other day, Dr. Ed Langel, Catherine Akey, and I sat down, well, virtually, of course. Ed was in Dublin, Catherine was in D.C., and I was in L.A. And we talked about February 1918, and here's how it went. <laughs> It seems like the big theme in February is all about troop movements and preparation, the Americans to Europe, the prepping and for engaging the, the enemy and the Germans from the Eastern Front, leaving Russia for the Western Front and prepping for a knockout spring offensive. So, so what are some of the specifics? So the, the major fighting in 1918 has not begun yet in February. Nevertheless, it's an extremely dramatic time even a tense time, even a pretty scary time if you're on the side of the Entente and of the United States. We're sending increasingly larger numbers of troops overseas on transport ships, and they're landing at places like Liverpool and in England and Brest. They're streaming ashore, hoping to move them to the front as quickly as possible to be embedded with British and French troops. Ed, just as an interruption, because we've talked a lot about that they're not going to be embedding them with troops. They're only embedding them with troops for training, right? Practically speaking, we do have to embed troops 
from the company level up to battalion, regiment, brigade with mm -hmm. British and French troops actually at the front. And they end up during the spring and summer in combat under French and British command. So oh, interesting. we don't form our own army until August. There oh, just wasn't enough time before the Kaiserslacht hit for them to totally have yeah. that experience alongside the French and then separate out and get moved to yeah. their to their own command. Yeah. yeah, we're not we're not actually amalgamated, but they are embedded in uh, smaller units uh, with the British and French, and they fight under British and French command up through August. And Pershing's okay with that. I mean, that's his that's his strategy. It's a compromise that he has to make. That this is kind of a short term uh, compromise until we can form a fully American army. So, yeah, we, we've got, there are a number of cases where we've got individual companies of American troops that are embedded in French or British divisions, and they end up experiencing pretty heavy fighting through the spring and the summer. So then, then we've got the ship coming over, and the Tuscania has an incident. Yeah. What is that? On February 5th, the Tuscania, which is a British troop ship, is sunk by a German submarine off the west of Scotland near a town called Islay, and 200 American soldiers are drowned. And this really brings home to people that there is a real danger, there's a real cost. We've been lucky so far, but when the Germans ramp up their submarine warfare, we could start taking some pretty serious casualties before we even get our troops ashore. Now, at the same time, Germany, which has been fighting on the Eastern Front, finally gets word in mid-February 1918 that the Russians are definitely going to sign a peace treaty and withdraw from the war, which they they finally do formally on March 2nd. But by mid-February, the Germans know fully that they can pull their troops completely out of the Eastern Front and move them to the West. The Entente and the Americans are fully aware of this too, and they know that a major German offensive is coming in a matter of weeks, if not actually days. So there's there's a sense approaching panic on the Western Front. And so we want to get Americans to the front as quickly as we can before the Germans launch this offensive. Now, the Germans, from their point of view, are absolutely determined that they're going to school the fresh American troops. So they're going to punish them in some highly publicized assaults, raids, or other attacks with the specific desire that the American media is going to report about these defeats, demoralize the American home front, demoralize the American government, their aggression and of their attacks. They're designed for that specific purpose to demoralize the Americans before they can have any impact. Now, Catherine, you came up with one article in particular that, uh, that made it into the American press from a German soldier sort of taunting and making fun of the Americans, right? Yeah, um, this is from the very end of January. Um, it's from a Colonel, Colonel Goetke, and it's, it's the report in the New York Times of his original article that was written in a German socialist newspaper, um, and the article was called The Truth About the American Army. And it just undermines us at every turn. My favorite quote from it, he's, he's talking about how Mr. Baker said that he had almost 10,000 officers in April, but now has 110,000. And he says, that's truly an American masterpiece of accomplishment to sew epaulettes on 100,000 men and call them officers, which is 
a, a critique of how quickly the American army is expanding and the possibility that we're not really as ready as we think we are. We talked a little bit earlier about how the administration was trying to really hide our, our troop growth and strategy from the Germans. So it sounds like that kind of ties in. But you also found an article where the French and the British were sitting there saying, well, there's not going to be a big German offensive anyhow. Yeah. And so the French and the British are sitting around waiting for this rumored big German attack on the Western Front. And they think it's going to come on January 20th. And the date comes and goes. Um, The French are chomping at the bit. There's another article in the Times um, about how they are calmly confident of their ability to withstand the worst that the Germans can do. And there's an article in the Times about the British who have captured a number of German prisoners, none of whom seem to know anything about an attack. And it leaves them thinking that all this talk of a great offensive is is highly exaggerated. So really German misinformation. Yeah, or they're doing a great job of not letting some of the lower level troops on the front lines know what's coming in March. But Ed, there's a really dramatic thing that happens towards the end of the month, isn't there? Well, of course, a lot of what we can see is with the benefit of hindsight, through this period. And while the French and the British are publicly optimistic about what's going to happen, truthfully, they don't really know what's going on. And there is a good deal of trepidation. And there's also trepidation about even if we get the Americans to the front, are they going to be able to resist the Germans? On February 26th and 27th, the first division, the American first division, is supposed to be the best in our arsenal encounters the Germans at a place called Ansovi, which is near Metz and Nancy in in eastern France. Well, the 1st Division decides it's going to experiment with uh, chemical warfare and fires a few gas shells at the Germans. The Germans respond with an absolute saturation attack of mustard gas and phosgene gas and other really nasty stuff, and the impact on the 1st Division is devastating. The Doughboys are completely unprepared. It shows that they don't know how to wear their masks properly. They don't know how long they need to keep them on. They don't respond quickly enough, and they take hundreds of casualties, including dozens of men killed from this really insidious weapon of poison gas. So that really bodes ill for the future and creates additional worry. So that's February, uh, a month of prep and propaganda and a lot of other things that start with a P, including a kind of a disaster near the end. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Yeah, waiting for that other shoe to drop, sounds like. For our War in the Sky segment, we're joined today by R.G. Head, retired Air Force Brigadier General, former fighter pilot, military historian, and author. Welcome, R.G. Thank you, Theo. I wanted to bring you in today to help us with an overview of the War in the Sky for 1918. Of course, it has to be in context of the other key events of the year. But what should we expect for 1918 in the War in the Sky? That's a great question, Theo. Uh, 1917 had been a very bad year for the Allies. The aerial war had introduced mass fighter tactics, close air support of ground forces, and some strategic bombing. The ground wars offensive, the Allied offensive, had failed 
and resulted in very high casualties. The Allies were then on the defensive. On the other hand, Germany instituted what they called the America Plan, which was five major offensives in 1918, a try to win the war before the Americans can make a meaningful contribution. The German Air Force was to double its size in the hope of winning back air superiority, which it had lost to the British and French after bloody April of 1917. Now, in February of 1918, the German Air Force formed two more fighter wings based on the success of Manfred von Richthofen's Jagdgeschwader One. These resulted in air battles of 60 to 80 airplanes at one time. In late February, the German army launched Operation Michael against the British, and they advanced 30 miles in eight days. Part of this was due to the fact that the Germans massed over 750 aircraft at the point of the attack in, against the English 580. The air battle was one-sided. The British lost 478 aircraft in the first 10 days, and by the end of April, they had lost 1,300. Britain was only saved by their high production rate of aircraft and pilots. And as you mentioned, the, in, in March, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk certified the Russian surrender, and the Germans started transferring hundreds of thousands of soldiers and aircraft to the Western Front. Now, in April, the British people who had been suffering under the German Zeppelin and bomber raids demanded attacks on Germany directly, and the Britain formed the Royal Air Force from the Royal Flying Corps. It included an independent Air Force unit performing the first strategic bombing missions on a large scale. Now, also on April 1st, the German pilot Sergeant Weimar was the first combat pilot to escape his aircraft using a parachute. The British would not issue parachutes to its aviators until September of 1918. Now in spring, the major achievement of the U.S. air operations is the organization, training, and combat performance of the U.S. Air Service. From our status in April of 1917, of only 65 officers and 1,100 men, the Air Service grew to 7,700 officers, 51,000 men, with over three-quarters of them deployed to France, supporting 45 combat squadrons. Now, in June and July, the Germans launched two offensives on the Marne River the last of their five desperate attacks. The American Expeditionary Force contributes to the Allied victory at Chateau Thierry in preventing the German army from crossing the Marne River. Now, very interestingly, September is the costliest month of the war for the Allies, as they lose 580 aircraft to the Germans' 107 over a five-to-one ratio. The U.S. Air Service makes its first big contribution, but against 
the Germans' 80 fighter squadrons, the German air service is really the only force that significantly impacts the Allies. And this makes the month forever known as Black September. Now, on the 12th of September, the Americans take the offensive in the Battle of Samahel, a distinctly U.S. operation with seven army divisions and 665,000 men. Brigadier General Billy Mitchell assembled a force of over 1,400 Allied aircraft, the largest air operation in history, and the Americans are victorious. On the 26th, just 14 days later, the Americans began their most important battle of the war, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. And with over 1,200,000 men, we break through the Hindenburg Line, supported by the U.S. Army Air Service. Finally, the armistice comes on the 11th of November. And overall, German aircraft seem to be technically superior, but the Allies overwhelmed the German Air Force by numbers, which in 1918 achieved about a two and a half to one numerical superiority for the Allies. And uh, Theo, those are the things to look forward to in 1918, a hundred years ago. R.G. Head, retired Air Force Brigadier General, fighter pilot, military historian, and author. His latest book is a biography of Oswald Bulky, often referred to as the father of combat aviation. R.G. Head is also the curator of a comprehensive near-day-to-day War in the Sky timeline on the Commission's website at www.cc.org slash war in the sky, all lowercase, one word. We have links to the book, the timeline, and RG's Facebook page in the podcast notes. Now on to the Great War Project with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, so the Russians stopped fighting the Germans, but now the Russians seem to be fighting each other, or, or the Germans are still fighting with them, or I don't know, what's going on? Actually, Teo, everybody seems to be fighting everybody. But for our headlines this week, Lenin declares establishment of Soviet Union. Fighting resumes for Ukraine, Russia losing all its territory. And this is special to the Great War Project. Russia may have pulled out of the war on the Eastern Front, but that hasn't stopped the fighting there. Russia under the Bolsheviks believes Ukraine is part of Russia, and they are willing to fight for it. In January a century ago, Lenin's forces, according to historian Martin Gilbert, enter Ukraine and declare the triumph of Bolshevism there. Fighting breaks out between Russian forces and Ukrainian nationalists at Lutsk in northwestern Ukraine. On January 29th, Lenin's forces enter Kiev and Odessa, both in Ukrainian territory. Two days later, Gilbert writes, with Ukraine falling rapidly under Bolshevik rule, Lenin established the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR also known as the Soviet Union. This was followed within two weeks by the creation first of the Red Navy and then the Red Army. Soon after that, Lenin and Trotsky realized they must quickly lead Russia formally out of the war if the government they are establishing will retain any territory at all. There have been long drawn out negotiations between the Germans and Bolshevik forces at Brest-Litovsk on the Russian border with Poland. But in early February, a century ago, the talks break down because the Germans are pressing the Russians under Lenin and Trotsky to accept terms 
the loss of territory, they simply cannot accept. The Germans are planning to resume the war against Russia, and Lenin and Trotsky realize it. Tomorrow, the German commander, General Max Hoffmann, writes, we are going to start hostilities against the Bolsheviks. No other way out is possible. Otherwise, he writes, these brutes will wipe up the Ukrainians, the Finns, and the Balts, and then quickly get together a new revolutionary army and turn the whole of Europe into a pigsty. So the war with Russia resumes. Lenin quickly understands the Bolsheviks cannot win. Lenin and Trotsky inform General Hoffman they will sign any terms the Germans demand. Delay is impossible, Lenin writes. We must sign at once. But now the Germans are in no mood to accept the Russian surrender. They see the terrible state of the Russian army. German troops enter Minsk on Russia's western border and the German general declares, the Russian army is more rotten than I had supposed. There is no fight left in them. Yesterday, one lieutenant with six men took 600 Cossacks prisoner. The Germans seized the roads and railways. In four days, they advanced 150 miles, writes the German general. This is the most comical war I've ever known. We put a handful of infantrymen with machine guns and one gun on a train and push them off to the next station. They take it, make prisoners of the Bolsheviks, pick up a few more troops and go on. Reports historian Gilbert, the Germans knew that the territorial integrity of Russia was disintegrating even faster than could have been anticipated. And that's the story from the Great War Project this week, 100 years ago. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Here are this week's new videos from our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. One episode is about Russia's internal wars, civil war in Finland and Ukraine, and trenches at 10,000 feet fighting on Mount Lagajo. And finally, British Special Forces. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. It's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. Now this section isn't about history, but rather it explores what's happening now to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. February is African American History Month, so over the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you a series of guests and stories that highlight the African American experience in World War I. It's an important, complex, and sometimes horrific story of brave patriots fighting not only a war, but also a very racist culture. We're going to start this week in our Remembering Veterans section with Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, historian, professor of history at NYU, and member of the Commission's History Advisory Board. He's also the co-author of the book Harlem's Rattlers and the Great War, The Undaunted 369th Regiment and the African-American Quest for Equality. Welcome, Dr. Sammons. Thank you. So, Dr. Sammons, the Harlem Rattlers are also known widely as the Harlem Hellfighters. Now, they're famous as a unit and a regimental band, but who they actually were and what they actually did is a lot less known. Can you give us an overview? The unit widely known as the Harlem Hellfighters, which is one that my co-author and I do not refer to them as, and I'll explain that shortly, 
began as the 15th New York National Guard, uh, where the first black National Guard unit recognized by the state of New York, despite the fact that black militia units had fought in the Civil War, they were not recognized by the state, had actually been privately raised and sponsored by the Union League Club. So there's a black National Guard unit that was well known that became the 8th Illinois, and that was in existence from the uh, late 1800s. And that was a source of envy for black New Yorkers. So in any event, when sent overseas, that unit uh, was renamed the 369th Regiment, but still carried a state flag throughout the war, continued to call itself the Fighting 15th. And then sometime in March or April of 1918, it adopted the rattlesnake as its icon, and the unit became known as the Rattlers. And that's why our book is titled Harlem's Rattlers and not Harlem's Hellfighters. We believe that's a name that was given the unit by the American press, not by the Germans, not by the French, but there's circumstantial evidence that indicates that that uh, is how that name came about. Dr. Sammons, as we noted at the top of the show, Pershing insisted, for the most part, on troop deployments under American command. But the 369th was under French command operationally until 1918. Can you tell us about that? Well, Woodrow Wilson and, and Pershing and the def, uh, Department of War at the time uh, wanted to make sure that the American army was independent. Remember, the Americans were never officially allies of Britain and France and Russia during the war. They were sort of associates. And that was purposeful, so to make sure that the Americans could claim a decisive role in an uh, allied victory in the war. There were... Some troops, and in fact, National Guard units that Pershing sent to the British and the Australians, but the only ones that uh, went with the French were black units, and the 369th was assigned to the 4th French Army. But it kept its uh, American commander and uh, officers. There were five black officers that went overseas with the unit, among them James Reese Europe, the band leader. In July of 1918, Pershing had the remainder of the black officers removed. So they were all white officers, but the command of over top of the regiment in terms of their placement in the 4th Army and was uh, French leadership. As a result, most of the honors that the members of the 369th received were French. 174 men received the Croix de Guerre. And the entire regiment did as well. And it wouldn't be until uh, 2015 uh, that the most famous combat soldier in the regiment, Henry Johnson of Albany, would receive a Medal of Honor, becoming the second black so honored from World War I. So when the fighting stopped over there, there was another big struggle as these men came home. What kind of situation did the African-American soldier and heroes of World War I come home to? Fortunately, the French treated them much better than the Americans did, but whenever they were under American control, they felt the full force of American racism. They were treated really horribly, and this was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to them at home. One of the things that happens with the 369th is that it's disbanded, it's decommissioned. There's no longer a 369th after the war. There was also real 
concern about whether they would be allowed to parade. There were attempts to only allow the original members of the 15th New York National Guard to parade. And uh, fortunately, there were some powerful people who said, look, all these guys fought. They should be allowed to march. But there was concern about what these men represented, having killed whites in Europe, having been trained to do that. Would they go back to the status quo ante or would they be disruptive forces and press for the kinds of treatment that they received uh, overseas? Um, many of these men didn't receive the kind of uh, recognition that they deserved as a result of their heroism. And as I indicated uh, earlier, Henry Johnson did not get a Medal of Honor until 2015. Freddie Stowers received one in 1991. But I believe, and so does my co-author and others, that there are more who are uh, deserving of consideration. And uh, I'm involved in a project now to do a systematic review of black soldiers in World War I who should be considered for Medal of Honor based on those who received the Distinguished Service Cross. And there's something like 70 of them. A similar thing was done for black soldiers in World War II uh, because no black soldier received a Medal of Honor at the time of, of the war, and there was found to be a systemic racism involved in the uh, medal awarding process. So in 1994, there's a famous Shaw study, and out of that Shaw University study, uh, some seven blacks uh, received the Medal of Honor, six of them posthumously. Vernon Baker was the only one still living at the time. Thank you, Dr. Sammons. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jeffrey Sammons is a historian, professor, author, and historical advisor to the World War I Centennial Commission. Now for A Century in the Making, the story of America's World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Now in this segment, we take you on an insider's journey that explores this grand undertaking and the people behind it. This week, the maquette arrived in Washington, D.C. Sabin Howard, the project sculptor, has spent months in New Zealand working with the Weta Workshop to create this nine-foot-long realization of the planned ginormous bronze. Late last week, he packed it up and shipped it to Washington. All right. Just closed the box on uh, the sculpture, and uh, we packed it last night. Um, the crate gets picked up in two hours, and it heads uh, on a 9,000-mile journey back to uh, Washington, D.C. Started in July, and here we are. It's uh, February next week, and um, sculpture's finished. It's quite a moment. Yeah, it's a big deal, because you, you see uh, an image of a sculpture, it's flat. But this is a three-dimensional object that carries a lot of energy. I'm going to show something to um, a really large audience that's going to shake up the figurative art world. Now, this past Wednesday, on January 31st, it arrived at the commission's doorstep. Yeah, if you know we can lift it's like a three or four hundred pounds. Yeah. We can put it down with the lift cable. We can then wheel it down the street and come up one of the ramps. I think it has to. Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, jeez. James, you want to help? 
Hey Dale, it's got your name on it. Does it really? <laughs> yes, on the top. It's so funny. It's just so nervous at, it, at the angle. Push it more this way, guys. There we go. Lift it. Here, okay. let me get this end, and Joe, you get that end, and then. Got it. Ugh, I wouldn't have squatted yesterday. Oh. Boxer the nails. Okay. Do we need some sort of uh, crowbar? Andrew's got a crowbar. There we go. Oh, kind of, kind of diagram. I know, right? What are the jars? Uh, there are bolts that. Ah, uh, they hold it together. Yeah. And why don't you come over here so it doesn't fall on you? We can both get this side. Yeah. So then, Matt, can you grab that side? We're just gonna move it forward a little bit. Yeah. Ready? I'm down. I'm gonna pack it, but it's a great packing job. You guys can take the second yeah. one. Why don't you guys take the second one? Joe, the last one's ready whenever you want to take it out. And the team got its first look, including U.S. World War I Centennial Commission Chair, Terry Hamby. Because of the involvement like this, every time I go to the Vietnam Memorial, even though it's just a big black shiny wall, I see so much. And uh, it's always very moving, and uh, I think from this point forward, every time I come in front of this, it will be very moving. Oh, absolutely. The Korean Memorial is one of my favorites because it's very action-oriented mm -hmm. and, and you, feel that, you feel like you're on patrol with that squad. And this one gives that same feeling. It's a moving tribute that tells a two-year story of our soldiers in combat in one piece of art mm -hmm. and a truly fitting yeah, memorial. And you can see the emotion and feel the emotion and understand the story and the plight of the soldier. You should take a look at you stand in front of the yeah, monument, so, so uh, it will truly be a memorial to their yeah. Yeah. You know, take it off. Very visceral. Why don't we set it up mm -hmm. in this? Very, very nice. Around the middle of the month, the maquette will be presented to and reviewed by Washington's Commission of Fine Arts. They're one of the governing and approval bodies for any project in Washington, D.C. After their review, the maquette will be introduced to the nation on a national television show to be announced shortly. Though we haven't been able to show it to you yet, this is a podcast, so we've been able to give you a sneak listen to the maquette arriving in Washington, D.C. We're going to continue to bring you an insider's view with stories about this epic undertaking to create America's World War I memorial in our nation's capital. You can learn more by going to www.cc.org memorial or following the link in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Now, we've told you part of the story before. 
On the morning of July 4, 1917, the mounted band of the French Republican Guard arrived with a large crowd before the residence in Paris of the recently arrived General John J. Pershing. He came to the window when he heard the Star-Spangled Banner, and the crowd respectfully removed their hats for the American general. That morning, General Pershing and his men of the 16th Infantry marched down the streets of Paris, celebrating the renewed Franco-American allegiance. Well, it turns out that a French newspaper, L'Intransigeant, reported that a cry was heard today by Parisians who acclaimed General Pershing and his men. It was, Attaboy! Attaboy! The phrase is a simple, popular contraction for that's the boy, which means here's the man for the situation, and on our fighting front, it became a war cry for the American troops. Attaboy! So soon, the phrase became synonymous with the American troops. In fact, in 1918, according to the Baltimore Evening Sun, the British took a real liking to the phrase after overhearing it being shouted by American soldiers during a baseball game. The paper reported that all the London papers have taken it up, with the results that, in London at least, the Americans are now almost unanimously called attaboys. <laughs> but we know that ultimately the word doughboy went out. Attaboy, this week's phrase for speaking World War I. See the podcast notes to learn more. For our spotlight in the media this week, we have a story about an episode from a French documentary television program called 13H15. The episode is about an American immigrant nurse named Josephine Heffernan, who served in France during World War I. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Marjorie DeRosier, who did much of the research on Nurse Josephine. Dr. DeRosier is an international nurse historian and independent scholar specializing in the early history of American Red Cross nursing and nursing challenges of the Great War era in the U.S. and in Europe. She herself is also a registered nurse and former clinical professor from the University of Washington School of Nursing in Seattle. Welcome, Dr. DeRosier. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. DeRosier, can you start by telling us a bit about Josephine? Who was she, and how did she wind up in France as a nurse? Josephine Heffernan was a young woman from Ireland who immigrated to the U.S. in 1906. She had traveled to the United States alone. In 1910, after settling in New York, she had graduated from a nurse training school on um, what was called Blackwell's Island at the time, the municipal hospital. In uh, 1911, she became a naturalized U.S. citizen, and her records showed that in 1913, she joined the U.S. Army Nurse Corps. She was um, one of an unusual number of nurses, very small number of nurses, who were members of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps before American engagement in 1917. Okay, there's a special story about a bracelet. Could you tell us that? I was in France in September and gave a lecture on the American Army Hospital System at a centennial commemoration of the U.S. Army in Chaumont. And after my uh, program was over, I was approached by a French woman, a local French woman, who asked me if I would help her find the descendants of a woman whose bracelet had been lost in her village area and found about 15 years before. She showed me a tiny metal bracelet that had the name Josephine Heffernan 
and the initials ABH 59, which meant uh, American Base Hospital 59, USANC, United States Army Nurse Corps, and on the back of it, AEF, the American Expeditionary Force. Um, Estelle Lefebvre, the name of, of my new friend in France, was a retired school teacher and had reached a dead end on the research she was doing on trying to locate descendants. So she asked my participation, would you help me find the family because I'd like to return this to them? Now, this was kind of an unusual request because when I lecture, I don't often hear from people about something that's as intimate as a personal item left by a nurse 100 years ago. So I was intrigued by that. I happened to go back through Paris before I flew home to the United States after this talk in September and had an introduction to a filmmaker, Helene Lamtrong, who was working on a documentary about something that was quite similar. She was trying to find the descendants of an American Red Cross volunteer who had left some items in France that were found by a family and wanted to return to the United States. So she had contacted me as an expert on um, American nurses in France in World War One. And as we talked, I said to her, I have a very interesting story that's similar to your documentary, and that is a French woman in Otman who wants to find the descendants of a U.S. Army nurse. So Helene and I talked, and the following day, she contacted me and said, could you please give me the number for your friend Estelle? So what started then was um, a very fast six to eight week um, documentary filming program of the unfolding of the story of finding the descendants of Josephine Heffernan. That's a wonderful series of events. It was very coincidental. Are there other stories like Josephine's where you've been able to connect with descendants of nurses who served in the war? Well, it's very difficult to find um, nurses' descendants because for the most part, they were single women. They had uh, generally left their homes and moved to perhaps another town or another city in order to receive their training. They started their careers, and they were, in general, women who migrated for employment. I might find the name of a, a very interesting nurse in um, my research on uh, World War One, but can't find records of her um, because she did not marry. And uh, had no descendants. So it's it's sort of rare to be able to, to find descendants of a nurse, um, as we did with Josephine Heffernan. Are you working on any other projects about World War I nurses? I'm continuing to try to pin down the, the biography of Josephine Heffernan, but what I'm trying to do is insert her into the research that I have ongoing about the, the general conditions that women from the United States faced when they were in France during the war. There's a great deal of interesting information out there that I'm trying to compile into an overall story. Dr. DeRosier, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. DeRosier is an international nurse historian, independent scholar, and registered nurse. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about Nurse Josephine Heffernan. Moving on to our 100 Cities 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. This week, we're profiling the Survivor World War I Monument in Beaverton, Michigan, a 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Round 1 awardee. 
With us to tell us about the project are Ed Rackwitz, member of the Gladwin County American Legion Post 171, and Scott Govitz, former Beaverton mayor and current chair of the Beaverton Downtown Development Authority. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us, Tail. Now, gentlemen, the World War I Memorial in Beaverton is really striking. As you might guess, I've seen literally hundreds of these World War I memorials, and this one is truly unique. It's a beautiful stone bas-relief sculpture, and it shows both a proud doughboy and the war's devastation. Now, since this is an audio program, could you describe it for us? Sure. This memorial was constructed by German-American artist Helmut von Zengen, and he was commissioned by the Manly Morris American Legion Post. The memorial was dedicated in 1925. A large crowd of dignitaries from all over the state attended this uh, gathering. The memorial depicts a doughboy standing with his rifle. There is a deceased soldier on one side, and there is a dying soldier on the other. In the background is a battle scene. He is standing, it looks like, on rocks. Uh, there's broken cannons and a wagon wheel there. Uh, it's, it is quite a striking monument. Uh, it has fallen in some disrepair, which is the reason we are making this effort to restore it. The artist was a pre-war German immigrant named Helmut Zenger. Tell us a bit more about him. He was actually born in 1885 in uh, Neumagen, which is on the banks of uh, the Moselle River near Germany's western border uh, with Luxembourg. He was an apprentice at a young age as a master sculptor at an early age, and then he went on to study art, and he finally landed uh, in near Berlin. Finally, at the age of 25, he came to the United States, and it was during that time that he actually came to our small community of Beaverton, Michigan, where he was asked to uh, do this particular memorial. And it's uh, that particular time that he undertook the project. And he also was uh, well known at the time. He uh, was commissioned and caught the eye of Herbert H. Dow, who was the founder of the Dow Chemical Corporation, and actually did some work for Mr. Dow as well. So apparently some years ago, in a well-intentioned but misguided attempt to repair the memorial, the repair actually caused some damage. Now, that's an important story to share. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a, a local Boy Scout troop, and, and uh, in talking to the scout leader who who's head of the project, at the time they did this, that was the best technology they had. It, the project requires a breathable paint so that moisture can escape and not be held inside the concrete structure. Um, they used some gray paint that didn't allow that, so now that has to be removed and replaced with re- breathable paint. We've uh, had quite a difficult time trying to find somebody who would restore a concrete monument. The colors have long been gone, um, and nobody is left to remember what colors they were. We just hired a a artist up in uh, South Boardman, Michigan. He just today sent us a photoshopped picture of the monument with his uh, idea of a color scheme on it. So we're going to meet Friday, actually, and and, uh, try to figure out how we want to proceed with that. What are the rededication plans? Uh, we're, going, we're going to consider that. Uh, at this point, we're concentrating on, on getting funding for the remainder of, the, of our work. We've, we've uh, raised considerable funds right now. We've got enough to do more than half the project. And we've got a fundraising meeting planned for Friday where we're going to continue to, to raise money. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
Ed Rackwitz and Scott Govitz serve on the Beaverton, Michigan World War I Memorial Committee. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program by visiting the link in the podcast notes. This week for World War I War Tech, we're looking at gas masks. As we mentioned at the top of the show, gas was one of the most horrific parts of the World War I arsenal. It was terrifying, both physically and psychologically devastating. Developing a means of protecting soldiers from gas's devastation was critical. In 1915, the Allied forces were caught off guard by the first chlorine gas attacks by the Germans at the Battle of Ypres. Many suffocated, and the soldiers found a quick battlefield remedy. Kind of gross. Holding a urine-soaked cloth to their face to counteract the chlorine. John Scott Haldane, a Scottish medical researcher, immediately undertook the task of developing a gas mask for the Allies. Haldane had worked on similar problems before, for the mining industry. In fact, you know his work already. He was the man who came up with the idea of using canaries and other small animals in coal mines to detect odorless, deadly gases. The canary in the coal mine. His first invention, called the Black Veil Respirator, was simply pads of cotton wrapped in gauze and soaked in a chemical solution. This was a start, but with the increasing density and frequency of gas attacks, the technology needed to adapt, and so the box respirator was developed. This turned into a kind of an arms race over the course of the war. New and different gases were constantly being developed, and each demanded a new and different kind of protective mask. We'll explore the subject further in the coming months, but right now, you can learn more about Haldane and his development of the first gas mask by following the link in the podcast notes. For articles and posts from our rapidly growing website at www.cc.org, In the news section this week, there's an article about the painstaking process of transforming ordinary ships into those decked out with dazzle camouflage. The idea behind dazzle camo was for the ships to be seen, but be seen incorrectly. If paint could be used to distort a ship's angles, the thinking went, that would make it difficult for the ship to be targeted efficiently. Now, the targeting systems of the time were, of course, the human eye and brain, which are easily fooled. But how do you test a given scheme for a given ship? The answer? Tiny models. Read more about how the U.S. Navy created a vast library of dazzle-painted miniature ships to protect their real counterparts from torpedoes. Follow the link in the podcast notes. And by the way, we just heard that there's going to be a Dazzle Camo painted ship scheduled to visit New York Harbor this summer. We'll let you know more when the plans firm up. Meanwhile, we invite you to follow the link in the podcast notes to read the article. Also, another new article posted in the news section of the site this week. Volunteer Caitlin Hammond wrote up the story of the SS Tuscania, which encountered some serious trouble 100 years ago this week. On February 5, 1918, the sun was setting as the Tuscania and her accompanying British convoy made their way towards the cliffs of Scotland. Shortly before 6 p.m., a huge shock sent tremors through the entire ship. All the lights went out at once, followed by the explosive sound of shattering glass. There was no question as to what had occurred. The Tuscania had been hit by a torpedo and with over 2,000 American troops on board. 
read the entire story of the dramatic rescues that followed and how the local Scottish communities remember the event and those who were lost. Just follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz. The centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what did you pick for us? Hi, Teo. The Center for Military History has a wonderful website about the World War I era. This week, we shared a unique page from that website all about embarkation from the U.S. and what awaited troops once they arrived in Europe. It's a very thorough page filled with maps, lists of material being shipped alongside the troops, and photo of the embarkation camps. Troops were continually being shipped out from the States all through 1918, and you can follow their journey from the harbors of the East Coast to the training camps in France by following the link in the podcast notes. Lastly for this week, we shared a post from the Ask Historians subreddit. The question being posed, how did Gavrilo Princip feel about the war he helped start? Princip lived to see most of the war, but not the end of it, dying of tuberculosis in April 1918. As carnage and destruction swept through Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, it's a great question to ask. He couldn't have meant to put into motion the death of millions when he pulled the trigger, could he? As the top response on the question says, quote, In a word, both Princip and his conspirators were unapologetic. The answer pulls from the notes of a psychologist that conducted interviews with Princip while he was incarcerated, and from Paul Jackson's book, Union or Death, Gavrilo Princip, Young Bosnia, and the Role of Sacred Time in the Dynamics of Nationalist Terrorism. It's a long but very interesting post, investigating the mind and position of the young man who is often pointed to as the spark that lit the fire of war. Read it at the link in the notes. And that's it this week for The Buzz. Thank you all for listening to another episode of World War I Centennial News. We want to thank our guests. Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Mike Schuster, curator of the Great War Project blog. R.G. Head, retired Air Force Brigadier General, fighter pilot and author. Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, historian, educator and author. Dr. Marjorie DeRosier, expert on the history of nursing and also an author. Ed Rakwitz and Scott Govitz from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Beaverton, Michigan. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and the line producer for the podcast. Special thanks to Eric Marr for his research assistance. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. And this podcast is a part of that, and we want to thank you for listening. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo and other Alexa-enabled devices. Just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. 
Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. If he can fight like he can love, oh, what a soldier boy he'll be. If he's just half as good in a trend as he was in the park on a bend, then every con had better run and climb a great big linden tree. I know he'll be a hero over there, cause he's a bear in any Morris chair. And if he fights like he can love, why then a good night, Germany. Hey, Doughboy. Attaboy. <laughs> so long. <laughs>